Founded by Logan Esterling, Reed Design is pushing the boundaries of oboe and English horn reed making. They take the knowledge they've collected from hundreds of reeds and, with the power of machine learning, derive patterns and trends that accurately predict the characteristics of finished reeds while early in the sorting process. The result is quality reeds with characteristics you can count on. Using their products will save you valuable time and let you get back to what you love, making music. Visit www.reeddesign.io to learn more. That's R-E-E-D-E-S-I-G-N dot I-O. Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Reed Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. I'm in like the best mood ever because even though today is not Friday, I don't have any classes on Friday. So this is technically my last day of teaching of you believe the it. 2020-2021 academic year. AKA the most difficult <laughs> academic year on record for anyone. <laughs> Parents, students, teachers. Friends of parents, students, and teachers, <laughs> family members. <laughs> if you haven't made it through yet, just know it's it's soon, it's near. <laughs> and I, I've had a countdown app going on my <laughs> desktop of my computer for like the past three months. So I mean, usually I feel a little bit guilty about complaining because we are so lucky to have work, but this was the hardest year ever for everyone. <laughs> yes, I I totally echo. We should be very grateful that we are able to run the race in the current yeah. circumstance. But yeah. I will also be grateful for crossing the finish line. <laughs> <laughs> so we got kind of a cool thing from a listener in Ireland who is playing the Poulenc Trio and maybe giving a lecture or speaking on a panel about, there was something about the Poulenc Trio and this listener wanted to tell us about it. So what what is on this video? So, okay, so Ben sent us a DM on Instagram and he said, DM'd. hey. Slid into our DMs. <laughs> I'm so old. I'm like, he, he sent us a digital email. <laughs> That's what the kids are saying. <laughs> and uh, Ben said, hey, shouted you guys out in this uh, YouTube video that I did for my conservatory. And we went and we watched and we listened. And the, here it is. I think the first movement, the opening is really famous. Yeah. Um, there's a, an oboe and bassoon podcast um, called Double Root Dish. And it opens with the opening of this trio. So, so basically, we validated and legitimized 
legitimized. Pumonk. The trio. Yes. It was <laughs> floating in the wind, higgledy piggledy, <laughs> before our podcast. And I just want to say you're welcome. <laughs> to Pulonk. You're welcome, Pulonk. You're you're very, very welcome. We're like Mendelssohn with Bach. Oh, yes. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Put that as a banner on our website. <laughs> we're like Mendelssohn with Bach. Anyway, Ben, thank you so much for the shout out. We loved it. We were so starstruck. Thank you for listening and for <laughs> giving us that undue credit. And I'm happy you enjoy the remix. And listeners, if anyone, we used a particular recording for the remix. Glee, I don't know if you even know what recording I used. I don't for know. Intro. But don't if know. you know, if you can accurately guess who's recording, is in used in the podcast intro uh send us an email and i don't know we'll give you a prize or a <laughs> shout out or or something because there's a lot of recordings of that piece <laughs> so if you know okay what's on know. the agenda for today i'm afraid to ask okay well if you listen to the last episode jackie <laughs> quizzed me on bassoon trivia and i would say that my score was ferociously average <laughs> um, and I get the pleasure of quizzing Jackie today and uh, I recall your exact words from the last episode were I scared well listen I did play the oboe before I played the bassoon and I did teach in a double reads position for five years so I'm coming into this pretty confident. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how I fare. But y yes, I, I have reason to believe in my oboe knowledge relative to, you know, these questions, which I hope are fair. All right. Well, we'll have to see for ourselves. Number one, <laughs> name five commonly asked orchestral excerpts on oboe auditions. Okay. Uh, Le Tombeau. The Coupon. Oh, points for pronunciation. <laughs> I did take a year of French in high school. I'm not trying to brag. Je oh. m'appelle Jackie. <laughs> Où est la salle de bain? <laughs> that means, where's the bathroom? I love it. It's useful. Uh, <laughs> Où est la bibliothèque? <laughs> Où est la discothèque? <laughs> Sorry, French listeners. I'm learning so much French right now. And okay. French Canadian listeners. Okay, okay, you got one. Stop stalling. Okay. Um, Rossini, The Silken Ladder, La Scala. Mm -hmm. uh, Beethoven 3. Mm -hmm. um, I really don't want to do the, the bassoon ones. I mean, I did the oboe ones mm -hmm. last week. Brahms Violin Concerto. Nice. To be fair, that is a bassoon excerpt also. It's a second bassoon excerpt. Yeah. Um, it is. It's too hard. I don't. <laughs> um, and there we go. Let's just do uh, Scheherazade. All right. Well done. Yes. Oh. <laughs> One down. Stop flipping your hair. 
what is the difference between American and European scrape reeds? Okay. <sighs> That's the sound of me cracking my knuckles in confidence, ready to do some work. Okay. So European scrape or short scrape reed. Mm. They're kind of like how we make bassoon reeds. It's just kind of a gradual taper. You're going to see some bark. Mm-hmm. And um, fabulous. American scrape is <laughs> more involved because it's also referred to as a long scrape reed. Oh. So instead of having so much bark there on the reed, that gets extended back. And there are three primary portions to an American scrape reed, right? We've okay. The heart that's in the middle ish and it's the thickest. And then second thickest is that like part in the back, windows or rails. I think only bassoonists call them rails, whatever it is in the back. Also known as the back. Yeah. The back of the reed. And then the tip, and that's got to be the thinnest because that's where all the vibration comes from. They have to be in balance. And uh, who was the inventor of this fabulous scrape? Marcel Tabito of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Bing, bang, biggity, bang, 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 bang. That's a slam dunk. Thank you very much. Booyah. (laughs) I would say you nailed it. I'm going to go ahead and say nailed it. I'd say that too. (laughs) I'm building your confidence too much. And I shall rule the world with my rudimentary (laughs) oboe knowledge. (laughs) Name five women principals in top orchestras around the world. Okay. Uh, Elaine Duvas. Yes. Catherine Needleman. Yes. Uh, Diana Daugherty. Yes. Erin Hannigan. Yes. Oh, okay. And Mary Lynch. Yeah. Yes. Slam dunk. <laughs> Name three common mistakes in oboe reed making. Okay. Well, as we've already established, I'm quite familiar uh, with the American oboe reed. And I will answer <laughs> this question in regard to the American oboe reed. Okay. Let's okay. see. Um, uh the the tip is not thin enough mm-hmm. it's not crowing a c mm, yes the three portions are not in balance with each other mm-hmm. and i'm gonna give you a fourth for extra Ooh. credit a dull knife that was such a sparklingly perfect answer Jackie. Which we don't really care about as bassoonists, but I understand y'all need to be sure. The number of times that bassoon friends have been like, can you sharpen my knife? And I'm like, you don't want me to. <laughs> what is the best instrument and why is it the oboe? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'd, I'd do better at a question of why not the oboe. Um, <laughs> the adjustment screws, the break-in period... <laughs> The temperamental nature of the instrument and reeds and humans who play it. Okay, but that's not the <laughs> What makes the oboe worth it? First, um, rep. That True. Strauss concerto alone yes. is worth the mm-hmm. oboe. The Poulenc Sonata, the Von Williams Concerto, Sanson Sonata, and some of this rep, y'all oboists might be too close to to remember how great they are. But as a non-oboist, that's those are pieces I'll sit and listen to all day. Gorgeous, they're gorgeous. 
Um, and what else? Uh, well, without the oboe, we would um, not have this podcast. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> so true. So true. Okay. So here's another one that I just thought of off the top of my head concerning okay. repertoire. Okay. Name two composers who did not write concertos for the oboe, but wrote beautiful solos in the orchestral repertoire that we wish had written solos for the oboe. Brahms. Mm-hmm. Y'all crazy about some Brahms. We're crazy about Brahms. Well, most of us are crazy about Brahms. <laughs> I can't, I can't speak for everyone. Tchaikovsky. Oh, that's a good one that I hadn't thought of, but yeah. Who's the other one you'd say? Barber. Oh, Barber. Mm-hmm. So that's three. Booyah. Booyah. Okay, last question. Yeah, that's true. That's another excerpt I should have said. What is that? Symphony number one? Barber? Yeah. That's yeah, a big definitely. Excerpt. I remember oh, yeah. we played it once and I was like, oh, I didn't really know much about this piece. And then the oboist is like sitting over there like freaking out. And I was like, oh, <laughs> this seems like a big piece for them. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Also the violin concerto, so beautiful. Ah. Okay, last question. Okay. Who is your number one favorite oboist in the entire world? Um, <laughs> well, let's see. No one's coming to mind. I definitely don't have any oboists that I like, um, even have any sort of regard for in any way. <laughs> Obviously, it's you. Yeah. But if I had to give a runner up, I have to shout out Diana Dougherty, who <laughs> is like queen, the coolest ever. You watch her play, and it's just like, okay, that looks simultaneously like the easiest thing in the world and so imbibed with conviction and expressivity and you're so super engaged i look at her and i'm like oh man how she plays the oboe is how in my dream world i will someday play the bassoon she's mm -hmm. just stunning the best glorious she's the queen incredible every time i watch her play i'm just transported into this into this land of love and inspiration <laughs> I know. And remember how in her interview, she's like, I don't know, the reads I have, I make work. I'm not going to sit around and tie blanks all day. And I was like, like, oh my God. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's also a really healthy attitude toward <laughs> the best. Oh my, oh my God. Literally Love the her. best. Yeah. Love her. Can we rename this podcast? The Diana Darty fan cast? Yeah. <laughs> the fan cast. Yes, we yes. can. Well, I think comparatively, I nailed oboe trivia. Far better than I nailed bassoon trivia. Well, okay. You worded it that way and I'm going to agree. <laughs> Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. 
RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Barton Cane offers a huge variety of GSP cane. Leave the cane processing to them. Use coupon code DoubleReadDishRocksMyWorld for free shipping on your next Barton Cane order. www.bartoncane.com Welcome to Double Read Dish, Alex Davis, bassoonist and founder and artistic director of the Sugar Hill Chamber Music Series. We are so excited to talk to you. I am super excited to talk to you both, and thank you for having me. This is wonderful. We always start by asking our guests how they came to their instruments. So how did you start playing the bassoon? Actually, can I say first that I was so nervous to do this interview and then I was listening and you made a Romy and Michelle quote and reference. And I instantly was like, I'm home. This is okay. This is going to be great. This is going to be, you know, like that movie was the first movie I like bought on iTunes movie. You know, when you could finally buy like an (laughs) iTunes movie. I only have like four. It's like Romy and Michelle. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I can't oh even God. remember the rest, but that is one of them. Well, and whenever I play with the saxophonist <laughs> or the Zappatini, I say I feel like Christy Masters is getting ready to come put magnets, yeah, on, magnets on your back. <laughs> oh my God, you have magnets on your back. She's like, what? <laughs> what? I love, 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 love that movie. I also have that same harness. It's amazing. It like was on Somebody posted it and was like, it's on sale, it's $25. And then I bought it and I was like, oh my God, this feels like a million bucks. I love it, especially as a tall person. Um, I started playing the bassoon um, in high school. So actually how I started music was my mom kept saying, Alex, you need to join band. We had a saxophone. My mom was always about us playing instruments and I did not want to play an instrument. I was like, I'm not, you're not going to get me nice try. Like everyone else can. So I remember I went home in like sixth grade and I was like, mom, there's no more spots. I'm really sorry. It's filled. I can't do it. And then seventh grade, my mom was like, you need to join band. I was like, yes. Okay. Okay. There's no more seats for saxophone. I'm sorry. Like there's just no possibility. And then (laughs) she was like, Hmm. And she called the school and got an eighth grade was like my son would really like to play saxophone can you please play him and I was like no and so that's how I started playing music I was dragged into the band room by my hoodie and I ended up loving 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 playing saxophone and I remember the first sign of it was we had to memorize back in the day when there was like lots of marching bands we had to like memorize our marching band music and our music was like a jazz version of the disney mickey mouse song but it was called like disney salute so it started off like m-i-c-k-e-y and then it was like i remember i memorized it like memorized and then you got like tested on it and i got like a 98 and I was sitting in the very last row of the saxophones. And I remember everyone in front of me had like a 57 and a 62 and a 7. And I remember being like, why am I in the back row? And that's when I was like, I am changing my instrument. So then I went to Barry Sax. I was like, I will be myself. I went to Barry Sax. That's the place to go if you want to be yourself, Barry Sax. And then right after that, um, I had went to 
I auditioned for some all counties. I had played clarinet a little bit and bass clarinet. And then when I had finally went to all county for Barry Sachs, there was a bassoon in front of me. The way it was set up, the bassoons were in front of us. And we played this piece that was like a medley of cartoon music. And the bassoon had the derpiest solo. It literally was like, and I remember being like, that's, I was like, that is amazing. How do I play it? I remember I was like, so naive. I was like, what is this Indian instrument? It looks amazing. Like now I know it's not Indian, but that was my huge like fascination with the bassoon. I just thought it was really weird. And I loved the challenge. It was like, everything about it was just like a challenge. And I remember like even finding the read, trying to figure it out. And so actually how I started on bassoon was my bassoon teacher, bless her heart, or not bassoon teacher, my band teacher. She gave me her like bassoon book that she had made when she took like bassoon pedagogy. And I took it to heart. She told me bassoon's one of those instruments where, you know, if something's not working well, you just add a key or something and, and make it work. And I took that to heart. Like I was like, okay, if it's not playing the way I need to, I just will add keys until I figure out the notes. So oh, no. yes. So it got to the point where like literally. So also what also helped me was that I had auditioned for the Eastman Youth Corn Ensemble on Barry Sachs, but I also brought my bassoon, I like snuck my bassoon into the audition. I was like, can I also play this for you? And he was like, um, sure. I was like, why? I had no understanding of the music world. He was like, sure. And I was like, okay. And then I played the Fausch, the second movement, like the slow movement. And he was like, yeah, I think we can, I think we can have you play on bassoon. So then I was like, yes, I can do anything. And then after that, I tried to audition for the Rochester Philharmonic which Abe Weiss was, was coaching the bassoonist who was playing principal in Rochester Philharmonic. Anyways, I auditioned for him. And it was the first time, because the guy I auditioned for before at Eastman, he was like a sax player. He didn't really know bassoon. But when Abe had saw what I was playing, I was playing the Fausch again. Like literally I played like maybe 20 measures and Abe was like, stop. <laughs> he was like, what are you doing? And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, I don't, what fingerings are you using for these notes? And I was like, oh, well, you know, this one is kind of flat. So I put this down. And then if I move this finger over here, when I play the G, like it was like all this stuff. And he was like, can I just see your instrument? And I was like, sure. He took it, could not play a scale on it at all. It was like really bad. But in that moment, he was like, I can clearly see that you were really passionate about this. And I can't accept you into the youth um, orchestra, but I would like to try to give you lessons and help you from there. He helped me find a bassoon that I could use. And then from there, that was sort of the start of my bassoon career. So yeah, it was kind of crazy. <laughs> so what age was that? And how did that turn into pursuing bassoon in college and trying to embark on uh, bassoon as a career path. Right. So I would say that all happened in, a, I want to say the end of 10th, beginning of 11th grade. Mm -hmm. So maybe I was like 17, 16, 17. Mm -hmm. um, deciding music. I mean, I didn't even, music just kind of was like there. Even when I like chose to do band in high school, I was like a nerd. I wanted to do drawing. I loved like anime and video games I mean I still kind of do but like that was sort of my thing and then I remember I like thought this one person was so cool 
I wanted to be an emo kid and he was in band and I was like, oh my God, he's cool. He's wearing a Ramon shirt. I'm going to wear a Ramon shirt. And that I just kind of like always just fell into always being in music. And I think it was always the show, the social aspect of it. And then when it came time for like college, all of a sudden it was like, well, Alex, you could do music for college. And I was like, oh, I can, like, that's a thing. And they were like, yeah, you can like, what do you think I do for a living? I'm a music teacher. And I was like, oh yeah. And so also in that time, I, my parents were in this nasty divorce and it came to a point where I honestly didn't even have like a place to stay for a while. Like we lost our home and we were kind of figuring that out. So college like wasn't even on my mind, like wasn't even near my thought process, but all my, all the music teachers around me when I was like playing and kind of always working my butt off were like, you should try Ithaca, go to Ithaca. They had all been like Ithaca alumni and out of nowhere Fredonia kind of popped into my face I don't know how but it just did I still don't know where it came from I still think it's like the world kind of forcing me in that the push but it just came out of nowhere and I remember it was like two days before the application was due and I was like it was February 15th I think was like the late late application I was like I'm gonna apply and I just applied sent it in I also applied at um What's the other one? Nazareth. Nazareth for, for music. But it was very clear that Fredonia was like the one. But yeah, it kind of just kind of snuck up on me of like, oh, yeah, this is what I could do. And so I started pursuing music education um, in my undergrad. So I, I started this in my junior year as well. And so I remember feeling like there was especially once I got to college, like I had to make up for all this time lost and having to play the catch up game. So what was that journey like for you going from kind of, for me, it was music is a hobby. It's something I enjoy in high school to music is professional training and this kind of formal (laughs) thing. I'd love to hear about that experience. Yeah. I feel like that, that honestly didn't even hit me until possibly like my sophomore year of undergrad and I I like Laura Kepke was my was like my first main bassoon teacher I was with Abe for a little bit but it didn't last long because of my family's divorce and finances and everything and actually one of the reasons I really chose Fredonia besides like going there and feeling like the environment was great my mom was like oh my god this is wonderful and Laura Kepke was amazing one of the um, positives was they had a bassoon that I could use. I didn't own a bassoon. That was a huge factor. I also didn't own a saxophone. That was a huge factor of like, how am I even going to do this? I don't have anything to bring with me to even study. And she had mentioned that they had bassoons. And I was like, oh, this is great. In the beginning, I was definitely absent. I was, again, I always say naive. I just didn't really understand the world. I didn't understand how it worked. And I definitely had a lot of mistakes in the beginning. Like, I would be sleeping in my dorm and I would get a call in my room and Laura would be like, hi, this is Laura. We have a lesson right now. And I'd be like, now? And she'd be like, yes. You know, I was just, I had no understanding of just how things worked. And, and so she was so incredibly patient with me, but also was like, I could was suddenly push me. I realized it now. She was suddenly being like, you can play. Let's get you going. If I see you take this initiative, let's go. And I was like, all right, I'll kind of walk through this door. Let's see what this is like. I'm like, oh, I like this room. This is nice. That's how it kind of felt like. Was she like dropping breadcrumbs? That's what it felt like. She was dropping. (laughs) She was dropping really good reads as I was going. I was like, "This (laughs) is better." I'm like, "Uh "Huh, yeah." So that's literally what it felt like. Her just guiding me slowly, and then it became this moment of just like, "Hey, Alex, you just played this really well. Have you ever thought about?" And I was like, "No, I enjoy this, but I haven't thought about this." 
Um, but the big moment of when I realized I wanted to pursue performance, I still love education. I still part of my life right now, even when I work is, is surrounded in education and music education in another way, which we can talk about. But um, the first time I ever, and I, I've mentioned this before in previous stuff, but the first time I ever realized I wanted to be a, like a performer and do performance besides kept being like, you can do this. The final like nail in the coffin of like, oh, wow, this is definitely something I could pursue I want to do, was seeing Monica Ellis perform. And she came to Fredonia um, my sophomore year and gave a master class. And that representation, it overwhelmed me with like, oh, wow, like this is, I've never in my life. And I had in my class, it's predominantly, it was a predominantly white institution. I had two other friends who was a Timberland clarinet player who, were, who was of color and a vocalist friend of mine who was of color in my undergrad who were like black, there was definitely a, a other people of color, but like in terms of like blackness or black centric, that was all that was there. And we all were just kind of music ed focused and we all kind of pushed each other in that way. And this was the first time I had saw another representation of a person of color in another position that looked like me or looked like my mom and my family. And I was like, oh, wow. And immediately after that, she, they announced that they had the Imani Wins Chamberlain's Festival and Monica was like, you should really come, you should look into it. And Laura Kepke was like, instantly like, oh, don't worry, I'm gonna look into this. We're gonna figure this out. Okay, I'm gonna email her right and she'll use and blah, blah, blah. You know, she was amazing. She just was always fighting. She fights for all of her students, she's amazing. So that's kind of like the beginning of like, okay, I wanna pursue music ed. And then I also wanna take on performance and see where that goes. I want, like, I would just love to ask your teacher, Laura Kepke, like, what, like, what did you see? Like, what was that kernel? And just from talking to you, it, your enthusiasm and your warmth um, and your obvious love mm -hmm. for what you do really shines through. And when you said you were so naive, I wonder if, would you say that that was almost an asset? at the beginning, like you didn't know <laughs> how Possibly. hard it would be? I think I think it was a mixture of that, but also the patience of Lord Kepke. Like, and I think, and I thought about this too. I actually listened to a podcast a while ago and it was about, was it revisionist history? It was something about this school that was predominantly of color brought these students to see Schindler's List. And as kids do, they were talking, they were making a whole scene in it. And the people in the movie theater who were not children, who wanted to see the movie, who definitely were like a mixture of white and Jewish and all these things were deeply hurt it. But it got to the point of where like police were involved and the school was shamed. And then um, eventually, who's the maker of Schindler? Is it Steven Spielberg? Yeah. Made, yeah, eventually Spielberg in the end was a beautiful lining of like Steven Spielberg was like, came to the school and was like, these are kids. Like, this is going to happen. Blah, blah, blah. There's this level there, especially when you're of color, that sometimes you're not seen as like naive or innocent or like you're, like you're being disrespectful. Or you're not letting me control. There was never that feeling with Laura Kepi. There was never that feeling with an English teacher I had in eighth grade. And I remember I reached out to her after I listened to that podcast and I said like, thank you. Like, thank you for being patient. There was a moment, I just got goosebumps. There was a moment um, one time where like this guy came to our, our campus and he's spewing all this hate. And it was one of those people who stand there with a sign and say like anti-gay, anti-black, like Jesus. Blah, blah. And the school had rallied 
and did this huge like surrounding of him and playing music and being loud and everything. And I remember that could have, and I skipped, I skipped read making class. I like totally skipped it. I wanted to protest. I wanted to be in the energy of it. And I was so proud of like my friends and us doing it. And Laura Kepke came outside with the other two freshmen, bassoonists. And she was like, hi, Alex, I just wanna let you know, we're here to support you, um, oh. but we're also gonna go back to, I know, also, <laughs> I know, I wanna cry, okay. Ooh, she was like, but we're gonna go back to read class. If you wanna join us, it's okay if you can't, but we're here for you. And then she went back in, like, and then moved on. I know, amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, it's the patience, patience is so strong. Like. Anyways, it was a beautiful moment, changed how I saw her, made me more passionate about like, she cared on another level. And it just from there, I just wanted to do anything she said in terms of like, you can do this if you try this, try this, try this. And I just did. And though Fredonia is a small school, I, I ran and I won everything that I could at the school, concerto. Uh, I did have this thing called performer certificate, which is not really needed, but it's like you do two recitals. You have to memorize music at each recital. You have to be approved by jury. I just, I was like, I'm just going to do it all. I want to, like, if I can do it, I'm going to do it. And that's just kind of how it happened. Um, and I've just been lucky that I've had people like her, Monica, when I went to Imani Wins, that was the first festival I've ever done. Um, Morelli, who I am with now and have been for a while, again, just extremely supportive and patient and see something but yeah you're right I think part of the naive naivete whatever you want to call it it was definitely helpful but I also more so think it was how she saw me as a person even more so you know supported you and inspired you yeah exactly yeah so you see Monica Ellis and this kind of changes your trajectory or your goals and can you walk us through kind of getting to where you are today in terms of championing a career that centers your identity mm -hmm. in terms of your artistry? Yeah, it took a while, of course. Uh, after undergrad, when I finished my music ed and performance, I went to Stony Brook and studied with Morelli. And that school was amazing for my master's because it supported me so much financially that I was actually able to get the, a heckle bassoon. I was able to save, though the bassoon I got was super cheap compared to what it should have been. And I'm, again, extremely lucky that I like happened to fall upon a IDRS forum. Somebody said they were trying to get another bassoon. I had literally the heckle that I got, I got for 2,800 or 28,000. So like, there's no way I would have been able to get it if I didn't take out a loan from Stony Brook and also have a full ride essentially, and then be able to work and make money. So I was able just to save and save and save and, and, and get this bassoon. So from there, from Stony Brook, I think that moment led to me finding Morelli, but then also being able to get a bassoon. I remember feeling um, very out of the loop. And also let me say this, this idea of um, centering artistic sort of entity or, or, or identity really started after Armani wins. I remember after I did that festival, it was the first time that I had saw other counterparts in other schools and I saw what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the biggest things 
about that festival. I, so right now I'm administrative manager for it. It like turned into me working with them eventually. And I've been doing that for about four years. And I always call the Amani, I give it the Amani effect where a lot of students of color or underprivileged students will come to this festival, see what their counterparts are doing and then step up their game and just be like, I mean, I left that festival and I was like, I'm going to create a wooden quintet and I'm going to start some stuff and I'm going to play in our community. I remember I ran back to Fredonia. I was like, everyone, I'm starting a quintet called Earth, Woodwind and Fire. And yeah. I, was like, I was like, who's going to join me? And literally had this quintet play that, like set up a library concert, was like trying to do all this stuff. So like, I have always been somebody who just wants to create and do and like go as fast as possible. And so after Stony Brook, so I go back to Stony Brook. After Stony Brook, I realized I felt like I wasn't in the scene. I felt like I was kind of disconnected from what the other world was like, I guess, orchestral world, New York City. Stony Brook is in New York and it's close to New York City, but you're far away enough that you're not anywhere near that scene. So I challenged myself and I said, you know, what? I'm going to take a leap. I'm going to try to audition for the orchestral program at Manhattan School of Music. And if that doesn't work out I, I'm just gonna move on and and because I didn't want to go back to Stony Brook I felt like I was getting stagnant there and I felt like I was kind of done for what I needed um, and luckily was accepted into the orchestra program at Hand School of Music it was a full ride because for that program they usually give the most money just because it's it's like their prestigious program and then <clears throat> from there I was also juggling doing other stuff I was never just doing orchestral at that point I had started a bassoon and saxophone duo and was commissioning works. In addition to that was the year I had also been accepted as the Orpheus fellow, African-American fellow. And with that program, you had to audition with music or like audition with a video. And then also you had to give them a project that you wanted to do. And I had been trying to actually put together a black chamber orchestra or a black orchestra in general in, in Harlem with a black conductor at the time. So I've always been trying to like create some ensemble that had to do with identity and community first. And just everything that had gotten away would always fall. It would always be like the venue I couldn't do or like the venue that was given for free, it fell through or it cost too much to do this or this much here. It's hard to get a bunch of people to do something uh, for free, which is understandable. So there was always barriers in between. And so then I'm sorry, I feel like I'm, I'm rambling. I have so many random, this is kind of like how my life is. It's kind of like random. So then from Zelana Duo, which was the ensemble that I had that were no longer together, we had commissioned like 20 works, but all of that was centered around inclusion when it comes to um, cultures and genres mixing, as well as audience members feeling like whatever concert we played, they could see some sort of genre or music that they related to. So it was a lot of like jazz mix of Bollywood, minimalist music mixed with... Um, metal rock. Um, it was a bunch of, it was just like a bunch of stuff like that. So after that, I did, when I did the orchestral program, I was also, I was like, I need to audition for something that is orchestral. I'm, I'm here. I'm doing this. This would probably be the good time to do that. So I auditioned for the Detroit Fellowship. I won that African-American Fellowship. I stayed there for two years and then I moved back to New York City. But all of this is a learning process. I mean, there's a lot of things in the mix there that made me realize this is not the space for me. This space is traumatic. This space is I'm, I'm dealing with assimilation into these spaces that are not healthy for me. And I didn't have time to heal until literally the summer 2020. I kept putting myself in programs 
to just keep going. Cause that's what you end up doing in music. It's like, you have no time to stop. You just have to keep going until you something um, hits and then you make it and you go up at the ladder and then you something hits and you get another ladder step and you keep going. But when, you know, COVID happened, I had nothing. I had nothing. I was in my doctorate. And once I finished that, I haven't finished it, but I finished classes. I just had all this time to think about life and what was happening and what had happened to me through these fellowships that I did, through the hustling of New York City and reliving all those memories. And it was a lot of work to sit there and be like, wow, okay, processing all of that. And then with all the stuff that was happening with you know, police brutality and Black Lives Matter movement and protesting in the city, um, I luckily had the chance to teach at this Timber Music Festival in Maine where I still teach now um, called the Timber Music Intensive. And on the way back, we went, me and my partner went to Boston because we wanted to do the Black Heritage Trail. And that trail was highlights all the abolitionists that were living there at the time who made a lot of changes. And something that I had realized was everything that they were doing intersected in their homes. Every recording that you heard would, would be like, they met in their dining room to talk about da -da 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 -da. They used their space to hide slaves running from the, you know, it was all of this. I was like, everything intersected at the home. And I remember thinking, I'm like, wow, like why have I never re like thought about my apartment in a way that could lend or help or give, you know, it's something I pay for every month and I do have, and it's lucky that I have a space because it's difficult in New York City. I have a dining room space that I could give. So at first I was like, who can we just let them use? Like who can we let use to rally to do something or anything, but also COVID was happening. So then I was like, well, what can I do that is centered around music? Cause that's what I do for a living. And then it hit me that like, I could just move the dining room table, push the stuff, put all the, the chairs away. And I had a whole space that I could use and try to start a concert series. And that's basically where it came about. It came about from trying over and over and over and over again in my career, in addition to realizing the traumas of being in other spaces and predominantly white spaces and very classical spaces where I've endured a lot of issues and heartache and trauma um, unnecessary just because of who I am and the color of my skin and what I represent as a human being born into this world in America. And so that's when I was like, okay, I want to do this because I know what spaces feel like when you're not being judged, when you're not being criticized, when you, when you don't go into it. And the first thing you think of, of how are they going to treat me because I'm black or possibly female or because I'm trans or anything like that. And that, and the first space that I felt that was in my lesson with Laura Kepke. The next space was Adamani Wins Chamber Music Festival. You're there with like-minded people, ran by people of color who really want you to, to work hard. I mean, Valerie was another part of like pushing me so hard to be like, you can do it. And then stole my bacon off my plate. You know, it was like the most human at, like interaction of just like, you can play and you can do it right now. But also I'm taking your bacon. I'm like, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> And that's kind of what I need. I'm a person who I need like real, I need realness. I need human interaction. I need you to come down from whatever pedestal you might've earned to talk to me. And if I don't feel that, I just, it just does not operate well. So I've had so far three concerts. I've created a season until May with a large park concert that's gonna happen, socially distanced park concert that's gonna be happening in Harlem um, while highlighting artists of color. So you've articulated some things and I've been kind of, you know, 
internet spying watching your career with with very peaked <laughs> interest you articulated some things that i think are on the minds of a lot of people but especially those of us in this classical music from marginalized identities not really knowing how to proceed you know we kind of get invested in this field not understanding mm -hmm. everything that comes along with it and then we gain awareness and therefore awareness of these kind of mutually exclusive powers at play and we yep. have to navigate that and you discussed processing that and that determining your steps forward so if you to whatever degree you feel comfortable if you do can you kind of talk us through some of those things you were thinking about and some of the conclusions that you came to in that process of reflection yeah i think for a lot of my career I essentially sugarcoated a lot of stuff so that I could move forward. For instance, say I was thinking about this actually the other day. Say I wrote a book about myself every day when I was like younger. Say like I wrote like this chapter is today. La, 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 la. When I look back now at who I am, more grounded of who I am, and I look back at those chapters that I wrote for myself, I can look at it now and be like, you, this is, you were trying to act like everything was great. And, and I know why you did that because you wanted to push through because that's what they kind of taught you is like, if you just grit your teeth and you go forward, you're gonna be fine. If you just smile. But in the end, I was so incredibly unhappy. I ended up taking a lot of crap from people because in my mind, that's what I had to do. But in the end, a lot of the people that I took crap from were never gonna help me in any way unless they wanted to already. And that's something that's hard to learn. And that's also something that's hard to, to get a grasp on when you're kind of alone. I was, a lot of the programs that I was in, I was alone. You know, I was like the only African-American in the space. Um, and that was really difficult to also try to process. So in the middle of healing during summer 2020, I realized that something that I was chasing and I feel like this is innate to all of us in classical music in the beginning is you chase those titles. And what ends up happening is you're trying to impress everyone around us. And so what I, what, what I was doing this summer was actually trying to get my ego completely out of the way. Because when I chased the title, I ended up in spaces that I did not like. I ended up in spaces that did not celebrate me. I ended up in spaces that were really, really negative for no reason. And I, and, and I have never been a person where I don't get along with people or I don't care about the people around me. And I found myself in those spaces and I was like, how am I here? And it was because I was chasing this ego. Now that's not to say that I don't ever wanna play in an, or in an orchestra or any of those things, but that is to say that I do not want that to define my life. And so this summer I had watered, I had washed away the title of bassoon and, and anything that would have came with it. And I said, what are three things that I want to do as a person? And what are three things that make me really happy? And I had those experiences again throughout my career. I've had those moments where I played so hard, my stomach hurt. And I love that. Or I've cried after something. And the three words that I boiled my, my career down to is healer, lover, and connector. If I'm not healing myself or whoever is listening, if I'm not loving what I'm doing and, and to the point where the person who's listening is not loving it, 
I'm not connecting with anyone that I'm playing with or the audience, I'm not going to be happy. I'm just not. And it was something that took for, I mean, I'm 30 now. It took forever. I mean, I don't know you guys too. I just, it took forever to like, be like, Oh, these spaces are making me happy because of this reason. And so as long as I'm healing, connecting and loving what I'm doing as a bassoonist, that title can be whatever it is, as long as I'm doing those three things. And that will make me happy. And that was a huge part of the salon. I'm loving what I'm doing. I feel like the people I play with are loving it as well. And the audience that I'm receiving last concert, we had 75 people steady listening on the live stream, commenting, enjoying, you know, being a part of it. I'm connecting with new people. I'm connecting with other, you know, it's hard as, as musicians of color to even connect because we're all in separate. We're so separate. And so I just wanted to try to create something that would just grab everyone and be like, okay, we're all in the same space today and let's see what happens. Um, and then healing. I mean, the last, I don't want to say it, but the last, I don't want to say too much, but the last um, concert with, with Justine and Adrian, it, the first rehearsal was such a healing space after we played. It was like, we just talked and enjoyed each other and realized what, what we've all been through. And then we're like, okay, let's go play this concert now, like tomorrow. So that was something I had to learn. And that is something that is still very important to me today and determines now any decisions that I do and kind of where my career is. And like I said, I would love to play in an orchestra um, but if it clips off any of those three words for me at any moment, I'm not going to be happy. Okay. So you went from the space that was really uncomfortable and didn't fit you and didn't celebrate you. And then you had this brilliant idea to start the Sugar Hill Chamber Music Series. And I would love to hear more about the beginnings of that and even what your vision is for its future. Yeah. So the beginnings of it, was I had always been in love with chamber music, always. It was always my first passion. <clears throat> Orchestra was always there because in school, that's sort of what you have to do. You know, if you play well and you get into your orchestra ensemble, then you do it. And it was sort of like always there that I liked as well. But I had always been trying to pursue chamber music the whole time. Um, even when I went to my master's, I was in a very intense woodwind quintet that we were auditioning and, and competing for a bunch of stuff like i said i tried to make that earth wind and fire and undergrad I love that so much um when i went to my master's like did to do the when i went to my post master's do orchestra program i was doing chamber music with anna making saxophone bassoon which we had commissioned like 20 pieces in addition to that i was sort of curating oh my god this is great i was sort of curating um, this concert series that would happen on Tuesday nights at a Thai restaurant all the way out in Far Rockaway. So literally like it'd be, I would like get two other musicians because this guy was like, we really like classical music. A few, he was so weird. He was like, if you play, I'll pay you $300. So I would pick me and two other musicians every Thursday, it was a Thursday, every Thursday. And we would take the train from the hand school music on 125th take like this two hour train all the way to far rockaway like last stop on the water like you literally feel like you're on the west coast like the first time i went somebody had a surfboard on the subway train i was like where am i <laughs> there, walk to this thai restaurant and then they would feed us free food and then give us a hundred dollars in cash and that would pay for my monthly um my monthly subway ticket so I was wow. sort of curating stuff there and then um, all the meanwhile, also working at Amani Wins. So, and this year I've just recently jumped on board with um, 
the Maine Chamber Music Seminar, which is which is over in, in, in Sydney, Maine. So I've always been surrounded by chamber music and I've always been surrounded in like self-advocating and, and self-promoting and PR and all that stuff. So when I started Sugar Hill, it not that it was a breeze. I just knew what I needed to have together by all the experience of like, okay, I need to have my message very clear. So if somebody heard or read this, it'd be, they'd understand what's happening. I need to make sure that my brand is obvious. So if I ask for any donations or anything, they knew like it looked clean and polished. I need to know that I had videos. I need to know that I had content. I needed to know that I could create content by having enough um, composers to play and record um i also knew, knew i needed equipment i had um one night i had this chaotic energy do you guys have chaotic energy it's like all the time he does <laughs> you know oh, yeah, exactly. that's my personality Cha- chaotic energy can, like range from like i need a donut now to like i need to buy all this stuff so i had chaotic energy at like one in the morning and i was like am i if i'm gonna do this chamber music series i have to do it now and i like <laughs> i was like no. and i had Saved a bunch of money, um, and I and I will be very transparent. I end up spending a thousand dollars on equipment, with stands, GoPro, um, mics, interface, all these things. As and long as it wasn't a thousand dollars on donuts, I think you're good. That's another story. <laughs> <laughs> so then, so then, um. So then, and I was just, I was just praying or thinking, I was like keeping my fingers crossed that at least in donations, I could possibly get it back, you know, in some way, because we're in a pandemic, we in a pandemic, say, and it was not easy. <laughs> and so I did it. I put it down. Um, I did not know how to work any of it. I was like looking on YouTube. I just like watched a bunch of YouTube tutorials and just kept watching and watching and watching. And then it led up to the first concert where I asked two really great friends of mine that I knew um, and who were just so willing to jump in, not knowing what this could be or what it could, or what they could make from it. And I put it, I presented it all a week before the concert to see what would happen and raise, ended up raising $6,000 in total in like less than two weeks. And then from there played the concert, raised a little bit more money. And then I told myself that I would create a season, get it all mapped out, have a website at this point. So slowly what I'm doing is just giving myself little baby steps of like if you can make this mark this is your next challenge if you can make this mark this is the next challenge um and so the next mark for me was to create a season so yeah that's where we ended up that's how i ended up starting the series and so my goal for the future of the series is to have another season to double the money that i've made so that i can secure two more seasons and then try to um highlight more artists of color and also commission. I really, really want to commission. The salon is held in my building that I've lived ever since I moved to New York City, um, which is called the Dunbar, which is named after Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who is a black poet. And so this was made during the Harlem Renaissance and it was really made for black families. And so there's no elevator, like it's definitely a walk up and all that jazz, but there's so much history and W.E. Du Bois had lived here and a bunch of artists and poets. So I really want to highlight I really, 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 really want to highlight the history of this place because I love it. It's We have this beautiful courtyard, not to mention we're right next to Jackie Robinson Park. So I, and I got a permit to play a park concert on May 28th. So we're going to do that. It'll be um, Wind Quartet 
quartets and we're going to do a little dance with someone as Jackie Robinson um, dancing to a jig by Joplin. So I'm really excited and we're partnering and every, every month I highlight another business that is in Harlem to uplift community and to keep us all connected. And so people can have some good finds if they want to come to Harlem. And how serendipitous the Dunbar and of course, uh, William Grant still uses Dunbar's poetry. Exactly. Symphony. Exactly. And that's so cool. Also, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, he like wrote musicals and everything too. Like I've, I've been trying to find more information and trying to find some of his music, but he wrote musicals. I mean, he's very, like you said, William So Grant, he's very in the scene. And so I want to highlight it as much as I can. And so I think that will help with commissioning. So definitely trying to get some fees, but I've been lucky that so far, I have made money back through donations and suggested donations that I haven't even had to touch really the money that I've raised in October. So that's, that's why I'm feeling like I can, yeah, it's been, I've been like, hallelujah. <laughs> I've just been like so happy. And like any money that I get, I'll pay more towards the musicians. Like for, if there's a contract fee, then I'll pay them more because of donations that come in. And I also have, um, a little assistant, Joelle, who helps me on concert days, who writes on the live stream. But for the most part, I'm running everything at this moment. But my goal is to just slowly get it bigger, slowly turn into a nonprofit LLC and go from there. Yes. So you are a trained music educator. You have received amazing instruction and it seems like this work would also impact your pedagogy. So tell us about how you pay it forward and how your um, artistry influences your pedagogy and in turn comes back and influences your artistry. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. Great question. Oh my gosh, the flow of that question. Thank you. Um, So I would say a lot of where my pedagogy is now or has been shaped a lot when I came back from doing the African-American Village from Detroit, I knew I wanted to move back to New York City. And, but I also had like no money. I was trying to figure out like what I would do while also pursuing a doctorate, which is not forgiving when it comes to trying to have a job to sustain yourself. Um, I, I had a friend who had a friend who threw this job opening at me and was like, here, this could help you try it out, blah, blah, blah. And it was at the Park Avenue Armory now, the Park Avenue Armory is on the east side of New York City, like on 66, um, and is this really big building. I mean, it's literally an armory. Like, it was a military. It was used for military. Um, but they've changed it into this big interdisciplinary art installation performance venue. And so the first time I'd ever – I heard of it before from friends of like oh this is crazy you've got to go see this but I've never been able to go there so the first time I had ever heard of it or the first time I ever been inside of it was when I interviewed and they have a whole teaching artist core like an education core and I had to do three rounds of interviews in teams so it was like me and two other teaching artists and then if you made past the next round then you do you and two other teaching artists and if you made it past the next round then you had to do another interview plus do a demo of a lesson and I remember freaking out and I want I really wanted the job for the sake of like I need a job but also like (laughs) but also like this is really cool I would get to come here and work and boy has this job shaped my thinking of teaching music insanely like it has made it more accessible in terms of like oh yeah I can talk about race and gender and sex and issues 
through music, like beyond just having to have like the historical aspect. So majority of what we do is at the Armory is when a show comes to the Armory and they're all commissions, they're all completely new. We, as the teaching artists, break down the show thematically. So we say like this show deals with race, this show deals with racism, this show deals with um, the economy, it deals with uh, anything and all everything. When we break that down, then we have to create our lesson ourselves. And since I am one of the music teaching artists, I'm supposed to break these themes down thematically through music activities. So not only is it like making me be really creative of like, how am I gonna teach this? But it's also like really inspirational. And I also get to, I feel like they believe in me as a person to talk about these issues with students. And all of our partner schools are all predominantly of color, majority black. And so, like for, and I'll give an example. Like when we watched this play and ice was playing in the background, there's like always interdisciplinary aspects of the ice was playing, but it was just like brass. It was just like, and I was like, what am I supposed to do? So then we broke it down thematically. And then we, the play was called Judgment Day. And basically the themes were about like gossip and um, mob mentality and all these things. And I was like, what am I supposed to teach like musically as with like, you know, mob mentality and gossip. And so eventually I was like, okay, I'm gonna teach them about gossip by doing, by doing this telephone game, except I'm gonna use the xylophone and I'm gonna make them memorize a pattern on the xylophone. And then they have to go back in line and try to convince, like tell them how to play it and see if it, if they can do it. So there's like that aspect or like mob mentality. Um, I had boom whackers and I played um, a pitch, an, or, uh, an order of pitches. And then for the students, I made them kind of sit there in silence for like 10 seconds and then try to figure it out together. And then that feeling of like feeling pressured to go with the group of like, okay, that's right, that's right. So like, it's lots of moments like that, which is really exciting, but it has shaped how I teach because when we grow up as musicians in our conservatories and our public schools, they're always like pedagogy, 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 pedagogy. Like the point is to get them to play it. The point is to get them to play the piece or know the rhythm. At the Armory, it's like the point is for them to have fun with music, but also really dive into what's going on thematically and how that reflects on themselves. Like everything that we're doing is student centered. It's like, how do you see yourself in this space? How do you reflect with what's happening in us? What does gossip mean to you? Have you ever been, you know, like these things. And we don't have that so much in classical music. It's like, right. repeat, produce, repeat, produce, repeat, produce, like do what I say, do what I say. It's robotic. There's, it's robotic, even public mm-hmm. school, it's robotic. And this is the first time where it's like, let's pause and reflect on what's happening. like. How does that make you feel? Like why embracing is it bad? the humanity? Why is it good? Yes, embracing the yeah. humanity of it. Mm-hmm. And we're doing it on so many themes. Like, and I just did a whole artist retrospective, is what we call them, on Juliana Huxtable, who is this trans intersex black female who is like amazing and this artist, but getting to be able to talk to the students about it and have no pressure or judgment of someone being like, you can't say this, don't do that. Da, 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 da. Just openly being like, look at this art. What do they do as an artist? You know, it's amazing. It's one of the greatest things. And I hope that that can bleed into our teaching processes. This idea of 
themes thematically what is more important like yes pedagogy is just as important for us if we want a certain route as well but also that doesn't matter if you are not a good human being or if you can't process yourself or if you can't emotionally play what's happening on the page because you can't emotionally process what i'm telling you like you know so or it's what a- you're doing is not relevant to the world in which you exist yes exactly Shoot, boom ding 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 it's like, what's the point? What's the point? Like now you're just doing it to do it. I feel like there's a point where you realize as an artist that there are two separate entities. There are the people that we're trying to impress who know our path and know our world. And like, if you get a job this way, or da, 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 we impress them. But then there's also the audience. There's a separate entity that doesn't even care about any of that, but wants to know what you're going to bring and wants to enjoy what's happening. And that is gets so lost in our education system. And I've been lucky to have glimpses of what it feels like from creating different ensembles and chamber groups and my duo of the saxophone to be like, oh, I don't need anyone to approve what's happening here except an audience that enjoys it. Um, and so there's, it's a nice reminder of that too. Just like, let's make it relevant. Let's make it connect to people. Let's go beyond the pedagogy and, and what everyone else is doing. Well, that leads beautifully to our standard closing question, which is, what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Ooh, my advice would to be, be unapologetically yourself. That is going to have people gravitate towards you who believe in you naturally, instead of trying to create yourself into these spaces. Now practice your butt off, do all the stuff you need to play like you can, but you can get lost if you don't really find yourself and keep going through this path as yourself and what feels right to you really be unapologetically yourself. That doesn't mean be an asshole, but that does mean be feel grounded and it's easier said than done, but try to remember, write down what you love about music and why you're here and follow those words. Don't get lost in the ego trip. I need your voice in my head 24 hours a day. I need my own voice in my head. (laughs) I feel like this was the therapy hour, not double. (laughs) That will be $25 an hour. Alex, thank you so much for talking with us and inspiring us and encouraging us to leave our ego at the door. This was a fantastic (laughs) chat. We really cannot thank you enough for talking with us today on Double Redish. Thank you for having me. And just a reminder that our concert, we have two concerts in May. We have one in the park on May 28th at 5.30 p.m. in Harlem and Jackie Robinson Park. And then if you can't come to Harlem, you can also catch our live stream that is happening on May 30th at 3 p.m. Um, you can follow us on the Sugar Hill Salon Facebook page or Instagram at Sugar Hill underscore Salon. Where can people give you money? You can donate on our website, sugarhillsalon.com backslash donate, or you can Venmo Sugar Hill Salon uh, at Venmo. (laughs) We hope you enjoyed that interview with Alex Davis. What a treat. And you don't want to miss the next episode. But we are not talking about that yet because I'm supposed to be talking about social media where you should follow us and you should also subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. 
Uh, and our YouTube is a little out of date. I'm gonna work on that because a we're little bit though. this summer break and I'll have to <laughs> do that. And now, Galit, let's talk about the next episode. What do we have in store for our listeners? Oh, you're going to love this next one. We talked to Mary Lynch, principal oboist of the Seattle Symphony. She is a queen and we can't wait to share that with you. Jackie, we got to end this nerd parade. Go make reads. And play some Poulenc. The Mendelssohns say so. <laughs> the Mendelssohns. Who's Fanny? We sound like an old Jewish couple. Can I be Fanny? <laughs> sure. Bye, Fanny. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>